There we go. It's my time. Good to see everybody. Uh, if we have not met, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at Fieldstone. A very special welcome, especially if you're visiting or, or newer to our, our family here. Uh, I'm going to jump into our, our, our next talk in this series called Terminal. Um, Joe, our next-gen pastor, is gone today. He's away with uh, 18 students and four leaders on a winter retreat this weekend, which is awesome. They're having a great time at a camp called Bear Lake over kind of southwest corner of Michigan-ish. And my daughter is in sixth grade. It's her first winter retreat ever, which is bringing back all kinds of memories for me. I remember my first one that I went on. Hopefully she's having a good time. Hopefully the boys are staying away from her because she's a cutie. Uh, but we'll, we'll deal with that when the time comes. But uh, what the interesting thing about an event like that is it takes a lot of planning, a lot of details. I know Joe starts working on it even back in like September, October. Um, I know for me, um, I'm not a natural event planner, not a natural detail-oriented person. Uh, but the nature of being in ministry, the nature of student ministries, which, which we did for a long time, is people don't let you take their kids uh, out of the country unless you are a good planner. So you kind of fake it till you make it kind of a deal. Uh, but then at our, uh, Joe and I served together at a previous church, and we had a boss there who was very detail-oriented, just loved the planning aspect, loved the details of that. And so he had this thing that he would make us do about a week out from a big event, like a winter retreat or even anything bigger, where he would make us sit down and in our imagination basically walk through every moment of the event as if we were living it in our minds. And what he wanted us to do was think through every detail that comes to mind and every question that we would have. So from everybody's perspective, so as the person planning the trip, what am I thinking as people are walking up? What do I want them to see, feel, experience? And when we get to day two, what's happening there? If they're a parent walking up with their kid, what, what are they asking? Do I have the right forms? Are there forms? Where do I find these forms? Who's going to be in charge of my kid? What vehicle are they getting on? If you're a student, what am I supposed to do? Where do I put my bags? Who am I connecting with? Who do I have to sit with? All that kind of stuff. So from every perspective, you're thinking about every detail from the start of the event to the end, no matter how long it is. Now, that's way more work than just winging it, my preferred way of doing things. But it puts you in a position where you're more prepared and you're being a better leader. Why? Because by the time you get into the heart of that event, anything could happen, but you've already thought about what could happen, what might happen, what will happen, what should happen. And so when things start going wrong, as they inevitably do, you have a parent issue, a, a student behavior issue, you have a logistical issue, somebody gets hurt, something happens with the vehicles. It's frustrating, but you've already thought about it as a possibility of the event, and so you're ready for it, and you, it's not quite as crazy. And so then what I would like to do um, as I got through that, is I would start passing that information along to as many people as I could when they needed to know it. So if we were going on an overseas missions trip, we'd get to the airport, gather everybody, all right, here's what going through security is going to look like. Here are some things they're going to do for us since we're a big group. Here's what you're going to say. When we get to customs, here's what they're going to ask you. Don't make any jokes, right? The, just kind of giving them a heads up. Like, this is what it's going to look like for the next three hours. If I ask you to do something, I need to just do it. Even if you don't understand, there is a reason. I'll give you the reason later. Because sometimes when you're taking 25 or 30 people through an airport or through customs, through these different events like Joe is doing today, sometimes you have to make decisions on the fly, things you've thought through ahead of time. And you don't have time to tell everybody, right? But you're ready because you had, you had some advanced warning, some advanced planning, and you're trying to pass that on as well. And what I've found, the, the influential people in my life, the, the best mentors, the best coaches, those have been people who not only pulled me aside 
and, and helped analyze and debrief the present that I was living, that the things I was experiencing, they made me look ahead and start processing and, and planning for and debriefing things that I will experience in the future, things I will be feeling, conversations I need to have down the road so that I was prepared for those things. So they would say, hey, here's what you can expect when you get into that office, when you get into that place, when the conversation starts, here's what you're going to want to say, here's what you should say, here's what you should never say, here's what you're going to be feeling, here's what they're going to feel when you respond in that way. All these different things that you could play out in your mind. What's this going to be like? It's like any good financial planner. It's like any good birth coach, any good surgeon, right? They're going to pull you aside and say, hey, when you come out of, when you come out of anesthesia, this is what you're going to be feeling. Here's who you're going to see. These are the conversations that we're going to have. It's similar in athletics, starting to have some of those conversations with our kids. My, my daughter, Hallie, in particular, only sixth grade. It's starting to show some signs of being a pretty good basketball player already. And I was never good at basketball. I got cut in seventh grade, and that was it. That was the end of my time. So I became a referee to take revenge on all of the... Uh, <laughs> All of the coaches who may or may not have had a hand in cutting me in seventh grade. Um, but that's a whole, whole nother, we'll save that story for a different sermon. But um, I've done enough of the sports things and watched Kathy do stuff all through college to where you can kind of know what comes along with playing those types of things. And so Hallie, playing basketball, I've pulled her aside and said, hey, probably not going to happen anytime soon. It's not a super physical game at this point. But at some point in your future, you might roll your ankle, right? And it's going to hurt. It's got to be the, like, the worst minor injury in the history of the planet, right? It feels like your leg is going to fall off. It's just horrible. Um, and so I've said, hey, you might meet a, a game that's a big enough deal, and you might have a big enough role on that team in that big game where if you roll your ankle and you have any desire to re-enter that game and keep playing. Now, we have some health professionals that are a part of our church here who are listening to this story, and they're like, I don't like where this is going. This doesn't sound like this is going to be good wisdom. It's not health advice, it's dad advice, right? This, this is a little different category. So I said, under no circumstances do you take your shoe off. If you want to get back in that game, big enough game, big enough deal, you know, something you can play through, do not take your shoe off. Because once you do that, the thing's going to blow up like a balloon, it's going to hurt more, you're never going to get that shoe back on. So over the course of that, if you roll your ankle and you want to keep playing, don't let that trainer take your shoe off, because you're done, Right? Bad advice, but wise, right? So, so it's, all, it's just all different categories. But wh why would I tell her that, right? The reason is because when we know what's coming, we can plan for what's coming and have a completely different experience when it does come. I'm going to repeat that several times throughout the course of the next 20 minutes or so. When we, can, when we know what's coming, we can plan for what's coming and we'll have a completely different experience when it does come. Last week, we talked about staying connected to Jesus, staying connected to him as the vine. We're in the midst of this series called Terminal, where Jesus is headed towards the cross. And he said, hey guys, I've taught you a lot. You've seen a lot. But in this moment, it's almost over. And so there's some things you need to know, right? And so he's been passing on some of this wisdom and knowledge. And here's who you can rely on. Here's some truth that you need to stand on. And so last week was a very blunt challenge from Jesus saying, you have to stay connected to me because in me, you can accomplish anything. Apart from me, nothing is going to happen. you got to stay connected to me, he says. And if last week was a blunt challenge, it's because today provides a very blunt warning about what his disciples, what we as his followers can expect to experience over the course of a lifetime of following Jesus. He says, there's a reason you need to stay connected to me. 
It's because there's two very different paths available to us in this life, and the temptation will always be to deviate from the way of Jesus. But just like any good coach, any good mentor, any good financial planner, Jesus says, the heads up might not change the future, but knowing that it's coming might make it easier to experience that future when it comes. And so that's where we find ourselves today. And if you remember, he was talking about the vine and branches last week, stay close to me. Well, here's why he wants them to stay close. Even though he's physically gone, remain in that relationship through the Holy Spirit. So John 15, continuing with verse 18, kind of picking up where we left off last week. Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it'll love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. But that's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If, you, if they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So a couple things just to, to establish here as a part of this passage. First, what's the world? Right, that, that phrase, the world, the worldly. This is a phrase that gets thrown around in church and by Christians and, and throughout the New Testament. So what is the world? Well, very simply, the world is anything opposite of Jesus. Anything opposite of Jesus. Any person, any thought, any worldview, any government, any process, any decision or way of making decisions, any view of God, any object of worship, any definition of truth. If any one of those things ignores is in conflict with, disagrees with, or rebels against what Jesus said and did or anything Jesus would say or would do, that's the world. Anything opposite of Jesus. Now, as Christians, we need to remember, it's not worldly just because the world invented it, right? The Xbox in your living room is not worldly. It's not opposite of Jesus just because the world invented it. It's not, it's not worldly just because it's not Christian. So it's something that goes in opposite and flies in the face of in contrast to the way of Jesus and what he's called us to, what he said, what he did. So that's the world. Now what is conflict with the world? Conflict with the world is when we do or say things in line with Jesus that then come in contrast to what the unbelieving world wants us to do and say. So we're living the best we can according to the way of Jesus, what he's called us to, trying to do what he did and say what he said and live the way he would live if he was here in the 21st century. And the world is calling us to something completely different. And when we choose this way, that's when the conflict exists. Now, that can be really big and really offensive to people, like affirming the definition of marriage in Scripture, or... It can be small and simply just awkward and hard to explain. Like, hey, coach, we're, my, my kid's all in. They're a part of this team. Here's uh, what we need. Here's the forms. Here's the money. We're, we're in. He'll be all the practices. But hey, there's a couple weekends coming up. They got a winter retreat the kids are going on. So my, my son, my daughters, they're going to be gone from that game or that tournament. Sorry, they're all in. I hope it doesn't hurt the team, but we want to prioritize this. We want, we want to make this important. They'll get to the really big stuff. They're going to miss, we'll, we'll let them do some of the Sunday stuff. So just some of it is, like, that's not going to offend anybody. Nobody, nobody's going to, uh, nobody's going to uh, think you're some horrible person for doing that, but it's, it's awkward. Right? Those, are, those are tough conversations to say, hey, we're all in, but my kid's going to miss that. and Just, just different conversations. So, but in the midst of it is conflict. 
tension between what we believe God is calling us to, what the way of Jesus is, and the way everyone else would do it in contrast to the way Jesus would do it. So, so the question then is, how far can this conflict go? How, how extreme does this get? Well, we've got some examples of Jesus' followers, the ones who were listening to this terminal conversation back in the first century, and the conflict went pretty far for them. Almost all of those 12 disciples gave their lives because of their faith, because of their obedience to Jesus. Peter and Paul, maybe the two most famous ones. Both of them martyred in Rome during the persecution under Nero. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down at his request because he didn't see, he didn't see himself as, as worthy of dying the same way Jesus did. So he asked him to flip him over. Andrew was crucified. Thomas was pierced with the spears of four soldiers. Matthew was stabbed to death. James was stoned and then clubbed to death. Simon was killed for refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias, who was the, the new twelfth, added to replace Judas, uh, he was burned to death. Even John, who wrote uh, this book of John and then the book of Revelation, John died of natural causes, but only after they tried to boil him in hot oil. He survived that somehow miraculously and then lived out to be an old man and died of natural causes. And so you think, okay, well, that Justin, that's first century. That's ancient Rome. Things were brutal back then, right? The world was an ugly place. Well, how about some modern persecution statistics happening in the world today as we speak where the conflict between the way of Jesus and the way of the world starts to go a little bit extreme. Currently, 245 million Christians in the world, that's one out of nine Christians, experience high levels of persecution for their choice to follow Christ. 245 million brothers and sisters. In an average year, 2,600 Christians are arrested, detained without trial, sentenced, and imprisoned. 2,600. In an average year, 1,200 churches or Christian buildings will be attacked or burned. An average of 11 Christians are killed for their faith every day. 21st century, 2022. Currently, and this is coming from Open Doors USA, currently 11 countries score on their extreme level of persecution of Christians. Less than 10 years ago, North Korea was the only one. So in less than a decade, persecution has picked up around the world to the point where we went from one country where it was extreme to now 11 around the world where that is the case. Now, does it always go that far? No. No one's ever going to burn this building down because it's a church. It's not going to happen, right? Maybe we can project into the future a time when that might happen. That's not going to happen, right? And, uh, I, I would put a lot of money down that most of us, if not all of us, will, will never face death because of our faith here in the United States. The conflict doesn't always escalate that high for all of us in every context. But why does it even get there? Why does this conflict exist in the first place? It's because to follow Jesus and reject the world puts us on completely opposite paths, heading in completely opposite directions, right? We have an opposite idea of who's ultimately in charge. We have an opposite idea of what our short-term values should be, what our long-term vision should be for life and eternity. We have opposite beliefs that there's one source of truth, one God, one way, heading in opposite directions, but the tension really gets difficult because what we, what we need to realize is that it's not just opposite paths, not just heading in different directions, but those paths are tied together, pulling on each other. I don't know if you've ever seen the game. I saw it on, I, I've seen it at uh, like a carnival one time. I've seen it on Ellen's Game of Games. I don't know if you ever watched that game show. It's on in prime time. 
But basically, they put a vest on two competitors. They each have a vest, and those vests are linked by a bungee cord. And they put a cone or a prize on one side of the room and put a cone or a prize on the other side of the room. And whoever gets to their prize first gets to keep it. Have you ever seen that game before? It's pretty fun. People start flying all over the place. But the reason why it's fun to watch and the reason why it's difficult is that it's physically impossible for both of them to win. One is going to win. One is going to lose. They do not have the freedom to go in their opposite directions without the tension. But the tension is there. And only one gets to experience the prize that they're shooting for. That is the tension that we experience in our attempt to live for Jesus. And so the contrast is revealing a choice that exists, a choice that many people don't want to make, a choice that many people don't want to acknowledge even exists. It's a choice where there is a different way of thinking, a different way of talking, a different way of living. There are different outcomes. It creates the reality that someone is right and someone is wrong. And that reality creates tension. That reality creates a conflict. Both sides, both ways, don't get to be right. They don't get to win. And sometimes, as we see with the disciples, as we see in various countries around the world today, sometimes that conflict gets taken to extreme levels. That awkward tension that many of us feel becomes even greater because sometimes that contrast starts to threaten people's influence, threaten people's power, threaten their status in the world, threaten the comfort that they're enjoying, and that's when things start to get a little bit more ugly. So for us, if that's the conflict, if that's the world, if that's the tension that we experience, what's available for us in that conflict? What's available for us in the midst of that tension? Well, there's a couple important things. And so we'll continue on here into John chapter 16, verse 1. So in the midst of these things that we're being told are happening, the conflict that we're going to experience, Jesus continues on in 16.1 and says, All this I have told you, I've given you a warning, I've given you a heads up, so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue, which is a big deal. That's not just not being able to go to church. For them, the religion, family, community, were all woven together. And so if they're going to put you out of the synagogue, you're losing everything. They're going to put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time was coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. And I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I didn't tell you about this from the beginning because I was with you. But remember, he's about to leave. He's not going to be physically available to them anymore. So there's some things he needs them to know. So he says, we get a heads up that this is real. Sometimes it's real in a small way. Sometimes it's real in a big way. It was real then, and it's real now. We get that heads up like a good coach, like a good mentor. Hey, this is coming. This is what you can expect. It's going to be difficult at times. It's going to be awkward at times. It's going to be scary or even dangerous at times. But this is what's coming. So we get the benefit of a heads up. What else do we get? Let's go towards the end of chapter 16 there in, in 16, verse 33. Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Jesus promises peace, but what we find out is that it's not peace because we get to avoid the conflict. Accepting Jesus into your life doesn't give you a detour around the difficult moments of life, around the tension, around the conflict, around the things that we will face over the course of a lifetime. It's peace in the conflict. 
He says, you will have trouble. And so it shouldn't surprise anyone that some of the things that we believe, some of the things that we have to say, some of the truth we have to declare, some of the choices we make simply for our own lives and for our families are going to come in direct conflict with the way of the world who lives opposite of Jesus, thinks opposite of Jesus, believes opposite of Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us. What we should find out and what we should experience is saying, hey, okay, this is going down exactly as he said it would. He said they might say this. He said we might feel this. He said we might face this issue over the course of our lives. But what a difference it makes when you know. What a difference it makes when the one that you follow has given you a heads up as to what's coming. It makes all the difference. I can't remember if it was eighth grade or ninth grade, um, but we had moved. Uh, my brother and I got to go on a bus trip, the Greyhound bus trip. I don't know if anybody does that anymore. Um, <laughs> But we lived uh, the first 10 years of my life on the West Michigan Lakeshore, kind of Hart, Shelby, Silver Lake, Sand Dunes. I know some of you guys travel, so you might have gotten over to that area. So we grew up over there. Great 10 years. Uh, my dad uh, took another church over on the east side of the state, so we moved. But you get through, you know, second, third, fourth grade, you develop some childhood friendships. And so there were times when our family would go back and visit people and, and things like that. Um, so there was a point, I think, eighth, ninth grade, uh, where my brother and I wanted to go see some friends. They were doing a big event over there that we wanted to be a part of and, and it just didn't work with my parents' schedule. So they bought us a couple Greyhound bus tickets and sent us across the state. I, my, as my kids get older, I'm like, I don't know if I would do that. But my parents did. They're old school. So, and we made it. I'm happy and healthy. Everything went, uh, went okay. But anyways, in that moment, my brother's older, uh, but just kind of the nature of our personalities and, and relationship, I've kind of always been the take charge one. So I was feeling pretty good. Like, this is our first adventure without mom and dad. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to get us through this. It's going to be great. They dropped us off in Pontiac, and then and the bus headed southeast from there. And I was like, oh, this is, this is different than the school bus. <laughs> um, but then, at, at, you know, headed back up, and we switched buses in Lansing, everything good, all great. Felt like, I'm leading this thing. I'm good to go. Ended up uh, in Muskegon, got dropped off there and picked up by some friends. Had a good few days there. They dropped us off again, and we're headed back, and we've got to change buses again in Lansing. No big deal. We've been there, done that. So we're sitting there, and um, our, our, I wasn't seeing our bus. The time was coming when it was supposed to arrive, and then the time came when we were supposed to board, and the time came when we were supposed to leave, and I still wasn't seeing our bus. There was a bus, but it wasn't a Greyhound bus. It was an Indian Trails bus. And I'm telling you, I can picture it clear as day, sitting in this, this seat, watching out the window, this bus fill up with people and then drive away. And, and it's interesting, as, as an eighth, ninth grade boy, some of you have been 8th and ninth grade boys. Some of you have boys who are at or near that age. Um, we notice things, but we don't process things, right? And so I'm noticing this bus out there that says Pontiac on it, which is where we were headed. Um, I'm noticing that it's filling up with people. I'm noticing that it's all happening at exactly the time that it would have happened for our bus but I didn't process the fact that it might be our bus. That bus said Indian Trails on it. And I'm thinking, okay, I have a ticket here that says Greyhound on it. I'm in a station that says Greyhound on the outside of it. And every, it's got that really cute dog, racing dog logo on the side of it too. Um, the, uh, every bus that we've been, we've been on three or four buses at this point, they all said Greyhound on the side. That one didn't say Greyhound. It said Indian Trails. So I'm thinking, that's not our bus. That's an Indian Trails bus. I want the Greyhound bus. Well, half hour goes by. I start to get a little bit panicky. 
So I walk up to the, the counter, and the lady there informs me that, yeah, that was, that was your bus. That was the bus that was supposed to be going. And that feeling, I don't know if it's blood, like, leaving your face or entering your face. <laughs> just, just a horrible feeling. There's all the emotions, like fear and anxiety and, and a little bit of guilt for screwing it up. And, like, am I in trouble? And the interesting thing is that at 8th, ninth grade, there's very much a part of you that's becoming, like, adult, right? There's, there's adult... Uh, thoughts that you're having, there's adult things happening, like just like there's this adult part of you, but then you're young enough that there's still like this child part of you. And for most of that trip, I was in adult mode, making decisions. We're getting off this bus, we're getting on that bus, let's sit here, let's talk to that guy. All these different things. But in that moment, I became fully child. Scared, nervous. And when that happens, when when you didn't know that something was going to happen, then it happens and you're in that position, not only are you worried, you start questioning things that you know are totally true. Like in that moment, I'm thinking, do we live in Lansing now? Like is this, <laughs> is this where we're staying? Like are we here forever? Is this, like am I in trouble? What's, what's happening? Do we need to find a place to live? Like all the things that are ridiculous. And at eighth, ninth grade, you know they're not true. If you had a clear thought, you're like, we're an hour drive away at the worst case scenario, right? This is all going to be fine. But in that moment, the child part, the uncertain, in that moment, because I didn't know, I was scared and afraid. And you start to question things. When you don't know, when you don't have a heads up, there's fear and uncertainty. You start to question the truth. Because in that moment, I can remember as clear as day the, the thought that kept rolling around in my mind. I kept saying it to my brother. I said it to the lady at the counter. Nobody told me. How come nobody told me that after all this trip, it might be an Indian trails bus that we're supposed to get? How come nobody told me? Nobody told me. Chad, nobody told us. Dad, how come nobody told us? Nobody told me it could be an Indian trails bus. And because I didn't know, I was afraid. And I was uncertain. And I was questioning things that I knew were true. But when you do know, there's peace and there's confidence and there's a sense of authority around the things that you know are true. Not because the crazy thing didn't happen, not because the scary thing didn't happen, but because you knew it might happen and you had some heads up that it would happen and you were prepared for it to happen. And so instead of fear, instead of anxiety, instead of questioning what's true, you can, be, you can have peace and confidence, and stand on what's true. Donald Miller, very successful Christian author, said it this way. He said, As long as a Christian is in the world, they will be pressed as though by a great mob. They will be crushed in spirit as though great crushing weights were lying on their chest. They will know spiritual anguish like that of a mother in labor. This Jesus has told us. When he speaks then of peace, it is not the peace of unruffled days, but the inner confidence of a warrior who is weary, thirsty, outnumbered, and wounded, but who fights bravely on, confident of the outcome, assured of victory. We are saved not from trouble. We are saved in trouble. When you know what's coming, you can prepare for what's coming and experience something completely different when it does come. When you know what's coming, Jesus has told us what's coming. He told his disciples what's coming. Certainly our context is different from theirs. Certainly our country's context is different from ancient Rome. And yet there are people all over the world, and even within our context, 
Jesus has told us what's coming. When you know what's coming, you can prepare for what's coming, and your experience is different when it does come. A couple questions uh, just to leave you in your brain as you walk out of here. First question is going to be a little bit more on the challenging side. Second question, a little bit more on the encouraging side, just kind of a push in the right direction. See how I told you what's coming? Just like I said, it's good leadership right there. It's good preaching. (laughs) First question. Does the world love you or hate you? Why or why not? Does the world love you or hate you? And I want to qualify that in a second. But Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You're going to have to love one and hate the other. Walking with Jesus, right? Even the course of this series, Jesus has told us what this looks like when he's gone. It means you serve, you humble yourself like he did when he washed their feet. It means that you love one another because that's how the world's going to know what you're all about. You're going to stick to the one way, his truth, his life. The Holy Spirit is going to guide you. It's going to fill you and empower you. You must walk in that power. Walking with Jesus is not a halfway proposition. John 14, 6 says there's one way. There is an in. There is an out. And yet I think many Christians, many churchgoers try to walk that fence, try to navigate that tension. One more stat. This is from the Gospel Coalition. Of Americans who describe themselves as Christian, more than half accept a works-based way of earning God's acceptance. Even those who attend churches whose official doctrine says eternal salvation comes only from embracing Jesus Christ as Savior. And so we're talking about people who are in places that preach what we preach, that Jesus is the one way and truth and life. And yet half of those Christians would say, ah, you can earn it. It can be good enough. You can say the right things, memorize enough verses, help the old ladies across the street and get where you need to go. Half. You say, okay, well, Justin, just because people say they're Christian doesn't mean they are. Absolutely true. Well, let's take evangelical churches. Now, throw out the political connotations that come with evangelical here in the 21st century. Evangelical basically just means that it's a church that holds to the orthodox beliefs of Christianity, of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, salvation by faith, all those different things make it an evangelical church. So the statistic pretty much holds, even in churches that are evangelical, that number holds as close to 45% of Christians in those churches would be okay with works-based faith. Now, this sermon is not about works-based faith and faith, uh, salvation by faith alone. We, we believe that to be true. But it's basically to point out the fact that many Christians, people who are hearing the truth, experiencing the truth, have access to what it means to follow Jesus, are choosing to try and balance on the fence and say, ah, I know that there's conflict. I know there's tension between the world's way and Jesus' way, but I'm gonna try to skirt through this, make my way around the conflict and avoid the tension that exists in that reality. But you just can't do it. Cannot serve two masters. Does the world love you or hate you? And I'll ask it this way. Is it possible that the world hates your God but wouldn't have much of a problem with you? Is it possible that the world hates your God 
but wouldn't really have a problem with you. Now, this is where I want to qualify this, because the word hate, sometimes we, we all have different pictures of what that looks like. I don't mean that there's a bunch of people in your life that want to give you the finger every time they see you, right? This isn't, this isn't like everyone in the world has, they, they just want to yell at you, and there's always fighting, and your neighbors hate you, and, and, and they burn your lawn, and all these different things. So I don't mean hate, like, because I, I don't know, I don't know that there's anyone in my life that just, like, can't stand me, that just hates me. Even Jesus, like sinners like to, the, the sinners of Jesus, they like to hang out. He would party with these people, but there was something about Jesus. He had that amazing uh, combination, full of grace, full of truth, th- this perfect mixture. He was so different that they were intrigued by them and they felt loved and valued by him. But at the same time, they knew what he thought. The adulterous woman. What did he say? I, I'm, not here to, I'm not here to condemn you, but hey, you got to stop. Time to be done. Here's the truth about the situation. I forgive you. I love you. Come, let, let's hang out. Let's learn and grow. But you know what? That's, this, this, is, this is opposite of me. This is not what I'm calling you to. This is different from what the word says. And so that, there's that incredible balance. We have to walk that line. We're see, certainly, that we need the people in our lives to see and experience what Jesus means to us. And honestly, when Jesus started fights, it was usually with the churchy people, not the, not the really bad sinners. And so there is this balance. And it's hard to, like, I'm not talking about, like, everyone in your life can't stand being around you because you're a Christian. That's not what it's talking about. What I'm talking about is if you were forced to be totally honest about what you believe, would it stand out in a crowd? If you were forced to be honest about what you believe, would it stand out in a crowd? Or, or is it always in line with what the world wants you to do and say and believe and experience? There is tension. There is a conflict. It's two separate paths heading in opposite directions, and there's a tension of them pulling on each other, and we are living in that tension. Second question, and we'll finish with this. Because you know the tension exists, because you know that conflict is there and coming, are you actively preparing for that tension? Are you actively preparing for the conflict that comes with following Jesus? Again, when I say tension and conflict, I'm not talking about fistfights after work. I'm talking about difficult decisions that need to be made. I'm talking about difficult conversations that have to be had. I'm talking about um, these, these scenarios that come up in our lives that are based on what we believe and how we live. Jesus has already told us that t- trouble will come. The tension will come. So we can look ahead, and, and I want to encourage you, look ahead and see what those issues might be coming down the track for you, coming down the track for your family, right? Maybe it's uh, a situation that your kids are in with school, and you can read the curriculum that's, that they're going to be faced with, or maybe it's a situation at work and choices you're going to have to make, and this is how we do things, and this is what Jesus would ask you to do, all these different... And so you can look down the road and see what might be coming. So start to read about it. Dive back into Scripture and see what the Bible says about those issues. Find some books that supplement that and read. Find a podcast that deals with those types of issues, partly to find out what does God say about it, but partly to start processing what are the practical ramifications of that. Saying, okay, this is what I believe. This is the truth. This is what God said. I'm standing on this. So when it happens to us, when, when the decision comes to us, how will we choose to handle it based on that, right? Because you can't, you can't, anticipate 100% of every scenario that might happen, what you can do is start to build a foundation that you can build on. Get to know your Bible. Dig deeper on those topics that you don't understand or you're, you're frustrated about or curious about. 
read more, ask more questions. Even some of you are in a situation, maybe you need to talk to your kids about what that tension looks like to be in the world, but not of the world. Right? They're facing things. They're facing difficult conversation, difficult moments at school, difficult moments in their lives. Talk to them about it. Give them a heads up. Right? Hey, hey, buddy, like, just so you know, a couple of these things are probably going to go down over the next year. This is how most of your friends and their families are going to handle it. This is how we're going to handle it. It's different. I'm sorry it might be awkward for you at different points. I hate that it's true. But just want to give you a heads up that this is what we're going to do. This is how you respond. This is what it looks like to stand in the truth in love. And yet we're going to be different. Here's why. Just want to give you a heads up that it's coming. Right? Give, and, and for those, those kids in the room, those teenagers in the room, those moments will come, right? Because your family is claiming to be different. Your family stands on something different. And so mom and dad, just like me taking teenagers through an airport on the way to Columbia, right? There are going to be situations where you just got to trust me. Thought through what's coming. Thought through the next step of the trip. You got to just trust me. I'll explain it later, right? Might be tough. We're called to be different. Different makes it awkward. Difficult makes it tense sometimes. Difficult creates conflict sometimes. But that's what we've been called to. But one, one thing I, I want to close this thought out with, because when it comes to kids, um, I, I have been disgusted lately at things that I've seen on TV and on social media, the way people have used their kids to influence the world around them. You might, you know your kids, right? You, you know your kids, your grandkids, the, the kids in your life. Um, some of them you can put in a position where you might ask them to be missionaries. Right? You might ask them and allow them to be in a context where they're going to stand out, they're going to be different, they're going to stand for something that no one else is standing for, and they're going to have, and you might ask them to be in that position because you know them, you know it be, might be good for them, uh, it might be something that they can handle. Now, some of you, you know your kids, and you might see your kids more as like, all right, they're not ready to be a missionary, maybe they're still a little bit more of a mission field, so I'm going to guard them a little bit more, I'm going to protect them a little bit more, maybe put them in a different type of schooling, Right, we're going to handle this a little bit differently. They're not ready for those conversations. We don't want them bombarded with, with opposing views at this point. And so by all means, put them in a different context. Whether you're ready for them to be missionaries or, or more of a mission field, but here's what they should never be. Your kids should never be the tip of your spear. They should never be the tip of your spear. I, I have been so frustrated watching the news, people using their kids to fight a fight that they would never fight themselves to fight a fight that they're unwilling to fight, fight a fight that those parents aren't ready to fight, and yet you, why don't, why don't you, buddy, why don't you go fight that fight, and I'll put it on social media, and you fight that fight, and we'll get the news to show up. Now, not all those things have been spiritual things. Those have been other issues and things, but your kids, they might be ready to be missionaries. They might, be re they might need to, to be protected a little bit. You know your kids, but don't ask them to fight a fight that you wouldn't fight. It's not fair to them. That's not what this is about. You lead the way. But we know it's coming. In many ways, it's here. Are you actively preparing for that tension? When we know what's coming, we can prepare for what's coming. And we can have a different experience when it does come. There will be tough conversations. There will be drama. There will be awkward moments. So start looking down the line and look for those things. I want to close with 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter lived it. He saw it gave his life for it. 1 Peter 3.14 Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, 
Do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Last thing I want you to remember, it's not your job to win. It's not your job to win. Jesus has already overcome the world. He already won. The victory is assured. It's not your job to win. It's your job to remain faithful. Let's pray. God, thanks for the heads up. Uh, it, means, uh, it means a lot uh, to be in this world. Father, you've, you've allowed those of us in this room, in, in this community, to live in a place where we can, I can say whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. I can stand on your word and, and, and likely re receive minimal pushback. And yet, God, we know that times it's tough, it's awkward. We think of brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution, who are facing death because of their love for you, because of their faithfulness. And God, I pray that in the context you've put us in, the country you've put us in, the community you've put us in, that we would be simply faithful to what you've called us to be. God, help us to be confident in who you are, confident in what you've told us, confident in the way you've called us to live. And God, I pray whatever the response is, that you would get the glory from it and that people would see something different, not because we're loud and obnoxious, but because we're in love with you and we love each other and we humble ourselves and serve others and we live by the power of the Holy Spirit and we stand on the truth of your son, Jesus. God, may people see that and hear that and want it. God, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the Super Bowl. We'll see you next week.